0: Well, good morning, good morning. It is a a blessing this morning to be with you and uh, be able to have the opportunity and the honor to share God's Word with you this morning. Uh, Our pastor is in the mountains resting, and uh, it's an honor for me to be able to fill in in his place. And this morning we are going to ask the question and hopefully answer the question, what is Revival. And you can begin turning in, in your Bibles to Second Kings. We're going to look in chapters 22 and, and 23. And there, there's some simple definitions for revival that we're going to work out of this morning. Uh, we're going to consider a, a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian and or the church. Um, Alvin Reed says that revival is a movement of God on the people of God, creating a fresh passion for God that leads to an advancement of the gospel. When I was a young boy, I, I thought a revival was a revival service, and uh, as I grew older, I began to understanding that there's a little bit of a difference between a revival service and the concept of awakening and revival. And a lot of times, revival services uh, lead to awakening or revival. But uh, my my childhood consisted of going to a First Baptist Church in a really small town on Sunday morning. And then I would go to a Pentecostal church on Wednesday nights and Sunday nights with my grandmother. And so I had a very interesting experience growing up, a First Baptist on Sunday morning in the Pentecostal church on the other nights, and one thing that was constant in both churches was revival services, and the revival services at First Baptist were very different from the revival services at the Pentecostal church, but uh, they, they both served to uh, give me this, this passion, this, uh, this curiosity for what revival meant. And the the revival services at the Pentecostal church both terrified me and intrigued me. And here's how it terrified me. Revival services were, were very frequent. And the first thing that the revival preacher would do is he would cast this vision for revival. And he would tell us of other revivals that had been going on in other parts of the nation, whether it was in Lakeland, Florida, or brownville texas or wherever it would be and and he he would tell of these revivals that had lasted for weeks and to a young boy that was absolutely terrifying the reality was i had baseball practice on thursday and this revival needed to end by wednesday and so all of the young boys in, in the congregation were praying against praying that the holy spirit would make this revival end On Wednesday, and even just logically, I had had figured out that we took up a love offering for the revival speaker each night. I said, "You know, our people are going to run out of money by Wednesday, so no matter what, this revival has to end." But the concept of God's Spirit moving on us in a fresh and awakening way just it it, it intrigued me from from a young age. And uh, we see a biblical example in Psalm eighty-four, verse six. The psalmist asks, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? The reality is that even even as believers in Jesus, that we have moments in our life in which we need reviving. It, It actually happens every morning when we awake and we we breathe in air, the morning air, we come to an understanding that we are people with, without a home country here, that, that our home country is in heaven, that we are a people living in between the times of, of this earth now and our heavenly future that is to come in the new heavens and the new earth. And, and we are living in the presence of sin and that we, even as believers in Jesus, we are sinners. And we get into the, these ruts in which we need reviving, in which our relationship with Jesus is not what it needs to be and we come to passages like this in 2 Kings chapter 22 and we see a beautiful biblical example of revival and it reminds us that there are many moments in our life in which we need awakening. There's a rich tradition in our country and in our evangelical faith uh, for revival. Actually, uh, today is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. I was at a wedding last night at First Presbyterian Church that uh, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson officiated, and I, I asked my friend, how did they get Sinclair Ferguson to come back from Scotland to do the wedding? And they said, oh, well, the, 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 what, the bride's family just planned it nine months in advance. They knew he was going to be here for this special Reformation Sunday um, um, celebration, and, and they planned the wedding around that, so today marks 500 years of the Protestant Reformation. We see in the 18th and the 19th centuries of the Great Awakenings that involved names that you recognize like the Wesleys and George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards and Charles Finney, D.L. Moody, Andrew Murray. Uh, we see in the 20th century uh, the Great Pentecostal Movement, the Zusa Street Revival in L.A., the Welsh Revival that involved Evan Roberts in Great Britain. And I would consider even closer, I would consider the Billy Graham crusades to be a great example of awakening in our country in the life of e- evangelicalism and the Jesus movement in the 60s and 70s that, that birthed a new, a new renewed vigor that maybe even birthed what we would consider, we would call contemporary or modern worship that um, even birthed the new, uh, new denominations in our country such as Calvary Chapel and even in the Southern Baptist Convention. We have not had baptisms like we had then. Between the years of 1971 to 1975, we had over 400,000 baptisms every year in Southern Baptist life. And each year now, even with population growth, we're we're really at about half that. We saw such renewed fervor in in our country, in our our denomination during those times. And uh, we see in the the mid-1990s through year 2000, the the Bramville, Texas Revival that saw over 200,000 people coming together seeking awakening and renewal. And I would even consider the passion student movement of Louis Giglio and many others that, uh, that started in, in Nashville and Atlanta uh, in 1997... Uh, to this date, uh, there's a passion gathering that's happening in January in in, uh, in Atlanta. And presently, there's been over 20 million college students that have come together for God's renown and His glory. And so, we have a lot of examples of public corporate re- renewal and, and awakening in our history. And when we look at this passage in Second Kings, I believe. What God is really wanting us to understand that renewal and awakening is very, very important for us corporately, but it begins here first. It begins in our own hearts. It begins in our own prayer rooms. It begins in our own relationship with God as we open his word. For us to experience revival corporately, we have to experience it right here in our own hearts. Let's look at Second Kings. Chapter twenty-two and twenty-three. We're not going to read through the, the entire passage, but I'm going to hit a few high points. In verse one, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. Can you can you imagine a king at eight years old? He he reigned thirty-one years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adahiah and Boscath, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and he walked in all the way of David his father and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. That verse right there in verse number two is gonna be one of the most important verses to explain who Josiah was because you see the, the, the chapters or the, the books of First and Second Kings were originally written as one book and it, it gives us over 300 years of history, history that's not very good history, history that's really the low point, one of the low points in the life of Israel and, and, and Judah when the kingdoms are going to be divided, and the, and, and the, the northern tribe is going to be attacked by Assyria, and the southern tribe Judah is going to be attacked by Babylon, and, and God's wrath is going to be poured out on his people because of their neglect of his law and his word, and we see many, many bad kings. The fruitfulness and and the life and vitality of of Israel is going to depend upon the covenant faithfulness of the king. And we see such poor kings throughout this 300-year history. But here in verse 2, we see a little bit about Josiah that he did right in the eyes of the Lord. The two kings, really the three kings before him, were horrible examples. But for some reason in God's providence, Josiah was different. Josiah was a king that sought to follow God. A king that did not have the word of God, as we're going to find out in just a minute. He did not have the word of God to to go by and to enrich his spiritual life, but he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So here's the context. Here's where we are. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the the son of uh, Azalea, son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah. Go to Hilkiah the high priest that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people and let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord repairing the house, that is to the carpenters, to the builders and to the masons and let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house but no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is uh, is delivered into their hand, for sh- they shall deal honestly. And so Hilkiah, and the high priest, uh, said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And, hi- and Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphon the secretary, and he read it. And Shaphon the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight over the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphon read it before the king. Think about this. The king of Israel, Josiah, who followed in the ways of his father David, who wasn't really his father, but maybe his great-great-great-great-grandson, maybe. He followed in the ways of David. He followed in the ways of the Lord. He grew up in a royal dynasty that was very, very far from God, a very, very wicked royal family that the, the word of the law, the word, likely the book of Deuteronomy, had, had either been just completely lost by rulers and kings that cared nothing for the law of God, or maybe it had been, by, been hidden by someone very jealous, or I'm sorry, zealous, been hidden by somebody very zealous wanting to protect it. But whatever the case the book of the law had been hidden in the temple. And we see an entire generation of culture that had not had the book of the law in their presence. And we see Josiah hearing these words in the book of Deuteronomy for the first time. And this is his reaction in verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahiakim, the son of Shaphon and Agbor, the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Uzziah the king's servant, saying, go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah. So we come to our first point. To experience revival, we must mourn and repent of our neglect of God's word. In verse 11, we see that Josiah tore his clothes in grief. The writers of Second Kings do not necessarily blame Josiah for his... For his culture's apostasy, for he'd grown up without the, the law the last 57 years of this royal family that had been far from God. He likely didn't know of all of God's demands in the law. And when the law was read to him and he heard of the demands, he mourned and he wept and he tore his clothes. We see a correlation between the situation in Josiah's culture and our culture today. We have plenty of bibles. We have bible you can buy the bible nearly in any store whether it's at Publix or Dollar General or Walmart or Lifeway Christian bookstore wherever you go you can order it on Amazon you can pull it up on your phone the bible is everywhere. Americans love their bibles. We see research says that each American household owns on average of four and a half Bibles. We see in our culture that 88% of Americans own a Bible. But what percentage do you think of Americans read the Bible? Uh, We we see statistics in different years such as 26%, 27% read the Bible maybe four times or more a week. We see an American culture that has grown up with the Bible but functionally. Functionally, the Bible is just as hidden in our culture as it was in Josiah's culture. And we see for us to experience revival in our lives, we have to do what Josiah did and we have to weep and mourn for our own personal neglect of God's word for us to be able to move forward in this posture of awakening. Does anyone have a a nemesis? It's not really good to have a a nemesis, but I I have one. I have this this nemesis that he doesn't know me and I don't really know him personally, but my freshman year in college, I was at a conference and and I met, or I I listened to a gentleman named Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is a a biblical scholar who does not believe in the Jesus of the Bible in a, in a relationship standpoint. He grew up a fundamental Christian, uh, an orthodox evangelical Christian. But at some point in his career, he turned away from the faith and he would identify himself as maybe an agnostic or perhaps even an atheist. But Bart Ehrman is the chair of religion at the University of North Carolina. And he is an expert in textual, New Testament textual criticism. And he, he really is an expert. He, uh, he is one of the uh, renowned scholars in this area of biblical scholarship. But he leads into his scholarship with his, his own predetermined findings that he as an agnostic. And so what, what he does, he writes on the popular level. If you have ever listened or watched anything on the History Channel or the Discovery Channel, or the National Geographic Channel, about the historical Jesus, you have probably heard from Bart Ehrman. He's featured um, constantly on Huffington Post, on CNN. Uh, If you are ever listening to anything about the historical Jesus in the popular media, you have probably listened to and seen Bart Ehrman. And what is so difficult about Bart Ehrman is he understands the scholarship he understands that the textual variants that the the places in God's Word where the Bible seems to uh, to make a mistake or contradict contradict itself he understands that that those times are, are very very minimal and they're very very insignificant to uh to historical orthodoxy that it, it it's simply just little variants just a few, and he understands that, that they're not significant, but he, he implies that they are. He's written a lot of books. Um, one is misquoting Jesus. He's, re- he's written a lot of books to try to discredit the historical New Testament. And uh, my, my nemesis em- emerged this summer most vividly the most vividly I have ever had to stand for Bart Erman. I was in New York City. I was in Queens around Jackson Heights, and we were sharing the gospel with Muslim and Hindus. I was partnering with a friend of mine who is a pastor of a Bangladeshi congregation, and that's what he was wanting us to do that week was to hand out information about his church and to share the gospel with Muslims and Hindus in the area, and so um, we had been sharing the gospel all day, and I was uh, stumbled upon this one gentleman that was actually a Muslim cleric, and uh, he wanted to hear more, and I I gave him the gospel of Mark and the gospel of Luke in Bengali, and and we were having a conversation. He was asking me questions. I was asking him questions, and he proceeded to explain to me how he, he loves our Jesus, but he hates our Bible. And, and, and he, he gave a, a little commercial for the Quran, and but he said, he proceeded to get, give me an explanation of why the New Testament is unreliable, and on a few of his points, I was able to counter and, and explain to him why those presuppositions are wrong, and, and I asked him, I said, sir, where are you getting your information? And he says, well, are you familiar with Professor Bart Ehrman And I said, absolutely, I am, I am familiar with Professor Bart Ehrman He is my nemesis, and And I asked him, I told him as our encounter ended after about half an hour, I said, Sir, I understand that that you are here to try to get me to believe in Allah and understand that your Quran is God's holy book. And I said, and I am here to get you to believe the opposite that Jesus is Lord and that He is the Son of God and that He died on the cross for your sins and that you can be saved from turning away from your sins and believing in Him. But you and I both know that apart from the radical moving of the Holy Spirit, that that's not going to happen in this moment. But what I want you to understand, I said, I want you to understand that there is more scholarship out there than what Bart Erman has to offer, and you need to and you need to research this because the New Testament is the most historical book out there that you could ever read. But this is the point. Bart Ehrman is a professor at the University of North Carolina. He teaches a freshman religion class very often in which he'll have nearly 300 students in the class. And he doesn't necessarily set out to cause any of his students to disbelieve, but he kind of pokes and and prods them and asks specific questions. But here's what he did quite a few years ago. He asked the class, he said, how many in here believe that the Bible, the Word of God, is the authoritative, inspired Word of God? And nearly everyone in the class raised their hand. And then he asked everyone, how many of you have read this book this week? And there were only just a few that raised their hand. And then he asked the question, who in here believes that the Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown is the authoritative word of God and nobody raised their hand? The Da Vinci Code was a lot more popular back when his book was written. And then he proceeded to ask, how many people in this room have read the Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown and nearly everyone had raised their hand? And so here comes a, a point. This statement that Bart Ehrman made in one of his books is basically what the situation is. We have an agnostic, possibly an atheist, bringing up a very good point about why Americans love the word of God, but we do not read it. And here is his quote. The question of why Christians will not read the Bible is one of the great mysteries of the universe. Well, we as God's people, we do not have this opinion. It's very likely that a, a room filled of followers of Jesus, especially that come to the 9 o'clock service, we have, probably, we have a, a greater awakening of, of God and understanding of God's word than most of our culture. But the reality is that our culture does not read the word of God, thus hindering any hopes for revival. We go on in, in 2 Kings. to uh, We see that uh, Josiah uh, had Hilkiah go to Hulda the prophetess and prophecy um, um, prophesied over uh, Josiah's generation and, and informed them that unless uh, something would change, that God was going to destroy the people of Israel and that they were going to be overtaken by Babylon. And so we get back to this theme of 2 Kings. The theme of 2 Kings is, is that Israel will fall. And that there will be, Second Kings is very, very similar to the book of Judges, where we see cycles of obedience, a little bit, and we see cycles of disobedience. And basically, what the writer is communicating to us, that we need a better king. We see Josiah as one of the most beautiful examples for a king, but the reality is that we need a better king king. And, and, and Huldah actually told, the prophetess actually told Josiah that because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord and you have torn your clothes and you have wept before me, that you will go to your grave in peace. But... You're the generation after you will not be so fortunate. We actually see that Josiah's son, Jehoiakim, who would come after him as king, he did not follow the God of David. We actually see in, in the book of Jeremiah, verse uh, chapter 36, verse 23, that Jehoiakim actually, after hearing the word of God, Jehoiakim actually had the book of the law burned. And we see destruction coming to the people of Judah and the people of Israel, screaming to us, That although Josiah was a great king, we need a better king. And then one day, God in his providence, God would do something that his people could not. God would send Jesus in his perfect timing, many years later, to come to earth and live a perfect life, to be the king that no earthly kings could be, to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death on the cross for us and for our sins, thus completing just completing years and years of yearning for a better king, but let's continue on. We're going to continue talking about revival. This after a hold of the prophets had prophesied over Josiah's people. This is what Josiah did, and this is very important. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered. This is in chapter twenty-three, verse one. All the people of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. In verse two, and the king went up to the house of the Lord. And with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and all the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were hidden, were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. Josiah, after being given the word of the Lord, he knew that the most important thing he could do was to gather the people and to read the word of the law because the word, we found out later in the Old Testament, later in the New Testament, the word is living and breathing and active and it has the power to captivate the hearts of people. We see this before many, uh, quite a few chapters back in 2 Kings. that Je- Hezekiah did the same thing. He gathered the people. We see Josiah gathering the people to read the book of the law. We're going to see Ezra the scribe in Nehemiah chapter 8 do the same thing. That when God's word is discovered with fresh awakening, that we must read it before the people. And this brings us to our second point. To experience revival, we must treasure the word of of God. We must treasure the Word of God. In this moment, Josiah treasured the Word of God so much that he knew what he must do. It was not necessarily a sermon, not necessarily a pep talk or any kind of formal prayer. He knew that what he must do is simply open the book of the law and read it before the people and that it would have a profound effect on the people of God. This conviction we see in, in many heroes of the faith In the 1500s, we see William Tyndale have a passion to put God's Word into the lives of people so that they could read it in their own vernacular for themselves. And and the church, the Church of England, or the the Roman Catholic Church did, did not want this. The Church of England did not want this. And this is what William Tyndale said before his death. He says, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life, Ere many years I will cause a boy that driveth the plough shall know more of scripture than thou dost, referring to the Pope. He said that if I complete my goal of getting God's word into the hands of people, that the boy at the plough will know more scripture than the Pope. His passion was to put the word of God into the hands of the people. Why? Because he treasured it. He treasured God's word, he knew that it had the power to change. So, for us to experience revival, we must treasure the word of God. Let's continue on further in uh, chapter 23, verse 4. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem and in the fields of the Kindron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposited the priests. Whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem, those who also burn incense to Baal, the sun, and the moon, and the constellations, and all the host of heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it in the the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast out the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord and where the women wove hangings for the Asherah, and he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he continues to list all of the things that Josiah commanded Hilkiah and the others to do. Basically, he began to obey the word of God. This is our third point. To experience revival, we must obey the word of God. And this is what Josiah did. He oversaw the removal of all things that require devotion to created things rather than the creator. He removed all of the idols. He removed everything out of the temple and around the culture that did not constitute worship of Yahweh, did not constitute worship of the one true God. Josiah passionately removed the barriers to revival in his life. In verse 24 and 25, we see that Josiah removed the idols that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah found in the house of the Lord. See, so Josiah had found this book, and in this book, he has found a, a way that God has pronounced upon us to live, and he looked around his culture, and he wept, and he mourned that he saw his culture was not following the words in the book of the law, and he, said, and he saw that they were doing quite the opposite that they all had this God-sized hole in them that they, they needed to worship something and they needed to follow something, but they were not worshiping and following the one true God. They were worshiping everything else and that they had perverted worship and that they had a misunderstanding of what worship was. We see a little further, one of the most disdaining parts it comes in verse 10. And he defiled Topeth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. Their culture was even offering, sacrificing babies to untrue gods and children to untrue gods. And and it was basically this enormous pit that was called Ben-Hinnom. And we later see in the New Testament, we see uh, really a derivative of, of this place in the word Gehenna, which is our word that we see for Hades or hell. And so what the New Testament writers did years and years later, they compared the fiery furnace of hell to this place here, right outside of Jerusalem, where people were sacrificing babies and children to an untrue God. And so in Josiah's life, he knew to bring about revival, he must have these places destroyed. And what God is saying to us through his word is that we have places like this in our hearts that we must destroy as well. We have things that we worship that are created things that are not the creator and that we, these are our barriers to revival in our lives that for us to experience personal awakening and revival, we must see that these things are removed in our lives. And this is what he did. We must remove the things from our life that separate us from a relationship with God by removing the idol and replacing it with a radical devotion to God. And Josiah was extreme in this. What we see, uh, we see over in verses uh, verse 25, I'm going to read this for us in verse 25. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods. The, the writer of Second Kings just keeps listing the things that Josiah has put out. And the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem. That he might establish, this is why he did it. That he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. This idea of turning to the Lord with all his heart and his soul and his might we see is really being the posture of faith that we find as followers in Jesus. We see uh, in in Matthew we see this in Deuteronomy chapter 6 but we see it in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 22 verses 37 through 39 you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind this is the great and first commandment and a second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself what the word of God is conveying to us is this posture of faith loving God with all of our being which suggests not allowing any part of our heart or our soul or mind to be devoted to things outside of devotion to God, to not be devoted to created things, but rather the Creator. One of my favorite movies from childhood, if not my favorite movie of all time, is The Sandlot. And The Sandlot, if you've seen it, is about... Um, There's two main characters. We see Scotty Smalls, who is a new kid that has moved to town and doesn't have many friends and is not good at the typical things that that young boys are good at. And we see Benny the Jet, Benjamin Franklin Rodriguez. Benny the Jet is an incredible baseball player, and uh, he is kind of the leader of this group of young boys that uh, play on this sandlot throughout the summer. And these boys, they have eight they have eight boys that play. And if you know a little bit about baseball, you, you, you know that you need nine to, to play a complete game. And so, so Scotty Smalls moves to town and he learns of these boys that are playing baseball and he immediately wants to join them. The first interaction, he goes out, a ball is hit to him and he misses it, which isn't the worst part. But then he picks up the ball and he goes to throw it and he just throws it a few feet in front of him. And everyone just dies in laughter. And Scotty Smalls feels about this big. It's kind of prophetic that, that his last name is Smalls in, in, in this picture. Everyone laughs except Benny the Jet. Benny the Jet looks, the camera kind of spans in on him, and he looks brokenhearted. And, and um, Smalls runs away, but he comes back later. He comes back later, and, and the ball is hit to him again, and he picks the ball up, and he runs, and he hands it. And so Benny the Jet comes out to the outfield, back to Smalls, and he gives him a pep talk, one of those good ho- Hollywood pep talks that changes everything. And uh, Smalls asked Benny, you know, how, how do I throw? How do I catch? And he taught him a little lesson on throwing, but the catching part was the most important. He asked him, how do I catch? And, and, and here's what Benny the Jet said. He says, just stand there, stick up your glove, stick your glove out in the air, and I will take care of it. Benny the Jet runs back to home plate, he hits the ball and there Scotty Smalls just stands with maybe he was left-handed just stands with his glove in the air and what happens is one of the most incredible moments in the movie the ball just goes into his glove. And we see it, we see a change. We see a change in, in the hearts of these young boys. They accept Scotty Smalls and and he he becomes part of the team and what we see Benny the Jet told Smalls, "Assume this posture." and I will do the rest. In that moment, we see Smalls as the hero, or I'm sorry, we see Benny the Jet as the hero. Smalls simply took the posture. He put his glove in the air, and Benny the Jet did the magic. He hit the ball into the glove, and we see Benny the Jet as the hero. And what God is calling us to, God is calling us to a posture of faith that if we do the things that God, God's word tells us to do, if we assume the posture that he will do the rest and that he will become the hero, we see that, that God and man cooperate in the work of salvation. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, we see, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. J.I. Packer gives us this beautiful illustration of what revival is in terms of our posture of faith. Christians in revival are accordingly found living in God's presence, attending to his word, feeling acute concern about sin and righteousness, rejoicing in the assurance of Christ's love and their own salvation, spontaneously constant in worship and tirelessly active in witness and service, fueling these activities by praise and prayer. If you're at the point of your life where you are seeking daily awakening and you long for revival in the church of Jesus Christ, then these are some of the things that we must do. To experience revival, we must mourn and repent of the neglect of God's Word. To experience revival, we must treasure the Word of God. And to experience revival, we must obey the Word of God. And we must assume this posture of faith in our lives that thus, what Packer says, found living in God's presence and enjoying His presence, attending to His Word, feeling a concern for our sin and, and, and feeling a desire for righteousness rejoicing in the assurance of Christ's love and their own salvation. We cannot experience revival if we do not have assurance of Christ's love for us and our assurance of our salvation. Be spontaneously constant in worship and tirelessly active in sharing our faith. And the, all of these activities are fueled by praise and by prayer. Where are you in your journey towards revival awakening. If you feel far from God, then I would suggest your, your, your moment of of starting should be in the Word of God. If you feel far from God, your, your moment of starting should be concerned with, with prayer. So the question is, what is next? What is next in your faith journey? I would say that it, it would be seeking our Lord in His Word and seeking after revival in Him. May we as a people, of Jesus be filled with his awakening that comes through his gospel and through his word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love your word, and we love this pastor's Father, and Josiah has read the book of the law, and he reacts the way that we must react every day. Lord, as he mourns for his neglect of your word, and as he treasures your word, and then as he goes and obeys it. Lord, we pray that you would lead us as your people to a posture of faith and obedience. Lord, that we would simply do what your word tells us to do. Lord, we are thankful people. We are thank-